0: Good to be at Baptist College of Ministry, and uh, I have missed being a part of the 20th anniversary year, and so I'm excited to be back that we can participate uh, in this final week of the final two weeks of the school year. Last year, we celebrated 10 years at Independent Baptist College of Ministry in Kenya, and uh, we had just a wonderful time reflecting on what God has done in the past but anticipating that God will do so much more in the future. And I know that is the emphasis uh, at Baptist College of Ministry as well. So often when I travel around the world, both in Kenya and then internationally flying, uh, I, get, I get comments, oh, so you are traveling with your daughter. And I have to say, no, actually, this is my wife, okay? Okay. <laughs> Uh, she's sitting in the student section over here, and uh, she's sitting with my daughter, uh, and you might not, the only way you would be able to tell her apart is that my wife is dressed in very Kenyan fashion today, very bright colors, okay, and she's wearing her, what, would you, what color, it's green, chartreuse, okay. So she's helping me with that today. Do we have a screen? I need to do this. Which button do I push? There we go, Okay. Ba- Independent Baptist College of Ministry, we st- our academic year begins in January and ends in November. And this year, uh, our theme is, "Wilt Thou Not Revive Us Again? Because 2019 marks the 90th anniversary of the beginning of the East African revival. And uh, so last year when I was here, I talked a great deal, gave the history of the East African Revival, and we are trying to remember that most Kenyans are totally unfamiliar with the revival that has happened in their community, and so I, one of my uh, endeavors as I go from church to church is simply to teach the people about their history. And then I also try and teach them what are the principles of revival and how can we seek revival. And I'm going to continue that theme again uh, today in chapel. But before I do, I just want to share with you some, uh, some of what God is doing in Kenya right now. And I need to go back to January, the beginning of our year, our college year. We started with our spiritual life retreat and Dr. Rick Flanders came and was our speaker for that. Our emphasis... Uh, because really the emphasis of prayer, and you would, rela- you would understand this, it, it's on, the emphasis of revival is on prayer. And so our emphasis of our spiritual life retreat was on prayer. But uh, one of the things we do every afternoon of our spiritual life retreat, we break up into small, what I call small mentoring groups. And uh, I was speaking with uh, a group of pastors. Some of them were faculty members of our college, others are students in our college. And just, we were discussing how can we lead our individual churches into revival. And in that discussion, I just made uh, a comment about a practice, a goal that I was challenged with when I first started in the ministry. Pastor Crockett told me this. Uh, And he said, make it the goal of your life to try and share the gospel at least one time every week. And I challenged our the pastors with that goal, and we just kind of moved on from that because our main emphasis for that week was prayer. At the end of our re- our retreat, our final service is a testimony ch- service, and in that service, one of our one of a missionary. Let me put it that way. He's not even part of our close team, but a missionary who uh, is part of our who ha- does. Uh, is related to our college, stood up and he said that that one statement really convicted him throughout the week. And he confessed that he had become content to simply pass out tracts, but he really didn't look to share the gospel with anybody, and he had been doing that for some time, and so he wanted to publicly make the commitment that he was going to try and share the gospel every week. Well, he sat down, another missionary, another faculty member stood up and said God had been convicting them him of that as well. And he was also publicly uh, committing to, try, to make it the goal to share the gospel every week. And then he called upon the whole student body and faculties and missionaries. How many would join in making that commitment that that will be our goal? to try and share the gospel. Every, and I, I didn't look specifically, but almost every hand appeared to have gone up and we made that commitment. And from that commitment, God has been doing wonderful things. Every week in our praise chapel in the college, there would be between six and 10 testimonies of people that had gotten saved that week. And I have to tell you, it wasn't when I made that statement with the pastors, I made the statement because we must make sure that evangelism is a part of our ministry. But what I had been challenged with back many years ago, evangelism needs to be a part of our ministry, but really our ministry is discipleship. And do not neglect the discipleship either. So as throughout this term, as students have been standing up and saying, praise the Lord, this person got saved, they'd always follow it with a prayer request. Pray that we would be able to see them discipled. Now, about a week after uh, our spiritual life retreat, one of our, he's a faculty member, He is a national pastor, he contacted me to tell me that God had led him to make an unusual commitment. And he made the commitment that to share, try and share the gospel at least once every day. And I thought, wow, that is an incredible commitment commitment. I believe it was uh, praying John uh, Hyde had made that same commitment. And I just told him, I said, it's going to be intense. Whatever I can do to help you, let me know. And I said, but here's going to be your struggle. How How are you going to disciple those that get saved? Well, his first week, he saw 28 professions of faith. And he realized right away, what am I going to do? I mean, he would just go out to the marketplace and uh, share the gospel, and people were just open. He started going to the marketplace to have discipleship lessons with groups of people, and he would do it on their lunch breaks because that's, that's how we met them. They would come to a certain, uh, we would call it a restaurant, but you wouldn't call it a restaurant because it's just sitting under the trees, someone giving you this plate, you're sitting on a stump, on a log, uh, in the dirt, uh, eating, and he would start having discipleships. We were at his church a couple of weeks ago. He believes that uh, probably 70 or 80 of people have gotten saved uh, since January. And uh, after the service on Sunday, I, I was asking him, so how do you disciple all these people? And I saw it in action. Normally, I would stand at the back of the auditorium and people would be filing out and they would shake my hand and they would greet me. It wasn't happening. Because when I finished preaching, when he dismissed the service, church members were getting a small group around him and they were dividing out. There's like six or seven discipleship groups taking place in church. Now let me just help express something that maybe you're missing in that statement. That means that many of these new converts were also in church. And they were there to be discipled. And it is just tremendous. My wife and I uh, began a new ministry in January. We went to uh, a church about 10 miles from our home. And uh, a national pastor who has just been struggling to build his church. And we've been asking for permission to simply help him Establish a core by discipling people in his church, and he finally gave me permission. And so, about the end of January, uh, we met with our first couple church members in his church, and we asked them if we could do uh, just do discipleship Bible studies. We started the Bible study, but we start with evangelism. And that first day, I asked them, "So tell me how you got saved?" Because they are saved; they they were claiming to be saved, baptized church members. And they told us their salvation testimony, and it was a bit vague. Uh, They weren't real clear. I said, okay, that's great. We're just going to study the Bible to see what the Bible says to to help give you assurance, to help you understand what happened when you got saved. And so we did the Bible study. took us four weeks. At the end of the four weeks, I looked at them. I said, now I just want to ask you another question. How does your salvation testimony measure up to what we just studied in the Bible? And uh, the husband who has, is the quieter of the two, he spoke up first. And he said, Pastor, I've always been relying on common faith. I know the facts of the gospel in my head, but I've never had saving faith in my heart. I need to get saved. Well, his wife could hardly keep quiet while he was speaking. She said, Pastor, I've been living in split trust. I've always been trusting in Jesus, But I've also been trusting that I have to do something myself to keep me saved. She said, I I wasn't going to church because I love God. I was going to church because I felt I had to do that to stay saved. I'm not saved. And that couple got saved about a month ago. And uh, then uh, the next week, uh, we were able to lead their 10-year-old son to the Lord as well. We started at at the same time with another couple, uh, basically doing the same thing, discipleship, and the the woman claims to be saved. The husband definitely said, I know I'm not saved. I don't like church. There's a whole story there, but I don't have time to tell that. But I want to ask you to pray for Gitanga. Nobody's moving. Thank you. Now they are. G-I-T-O-N-G-A. Gitanga and his wife, and we'll just leave it at that. I won't give you her name. Well, her name's Jadita, but it's a little difficult to spell. Sound it out phonetically, you can do it. But uh, we got through three of our evangelism Bible studies. We have one more to do that will actually call for the decision. And uh, we have been delayed in doing that. Uh, so, But when we get back about the 20th of Uh, Be the 19th of May. We're hoping to get back with them to complete that lesson. But pray, here's my prayer request that God would put a hedge of protection about them physically and spiritually and mentally while we are apart, so that Satan cannot steal away the seed that's already been planted. So pray with me. Uh, When they get saved, I will send out a shout, okay? I'll send out an email in my update and uh, tell you about that. Well, I want to talk about the East African Revival. Well, I want to talk about how do we get revival. And this is something that I'm sure you know about. I'm not going to say anything new. Well, Let me just see here. Okay. I showed this picture last year. East African Revival started in September of 1929 with two men. uh, The missionary Joe Church and the Ugandan national, uh, Simeon Sibambe, as they met together to study God's word, to to seek what was missing in their life, which was the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when they received it, it spread like wildfire through the the hills, the plains, all over East Africa. But uh, Joe Church, as the missionary seeking to teach the word of God, was preaching, to, preaching and teaching to multitudes that were illiterate. So he, devised, he realized that if he could draw pictures, it would adequately help him to teach the Word of God to people. And this is one picture that he drew to illustrate what is revival. Now, I'll be honest with you. I use this to illustrate what is sanctification. Okay, that's what it is. But sanctification and revival, I would say, are the same thing. And it simply is walking with God, walking with Christ, and with others. And I'll be honest with you, and I think I said this last year, what I, I, I knew the facts of walking with God, but I never realized that my relationship with God should be overflowing from my life to touch the lives of others, and that if I'm in revival, I should be walking with other people in that revival. And the power of example, the power of testimony, I think is something that we so often minimize. Now, part of it could be because we're not in revival, and I have to confess, that has been me for so long. Oh, by the way, Pastor, you have to congratulate me. It's my birthday. Not today, but this month, April. 1969, in April, I got saved. 50 years ago, I am rejoicing. But... Um, For much of that 50 years, I was walking in defeat instead of walking in revival. So I really didn't have anything to share with other people. And to be honest, I really didn't have a walk with Christ that was worth talking about. So I realized, and I shared this, I believe, last year, that our walk with Christ must begin with meeting with Christ. Just as we're going to walk with one another, we have to meet together. If we're going to walk with Christ throughout our day, we must meet with Christ in our devotional time. Now, you have heard, and I trust many of you, if not all of you, are practicing uh, the hour that changes the world. And we are trying to practice that in Kenya as well. So at our spiritual life retreat in January, one of the things, our, our main focus was how can we help one another, to really understand the different forms of prayer. And one of the things I realized is that, or or one of the forms that is probably the most difficult to understand, even wrap our mind around, is that waiting on God. So what I want to do this morning, I'm just going to give a testimony. Uh, Some lessons that God has been teaching me in my prayer time with Him, and uh, this is from our, my, our spiritual life retreat in Kenya. I taught on the first three forms, uh, worship and praise, waiting on God and confession. Because I'll tell you, for me, this has made so much difference in my prayer time. Again, I got saved 50 years ago. I was a child, okay? So, but I learned some habits of prayer as a child that really hindered and uh, dwarfed my spiritual growth. And I hear this all the time among grown-ups. Okay? How do we in America begin our prayers? We say, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we say it so fast that it has just become a rote beginning to prayer. We don't even think about it, that we're actually thanking God. Kenyans have the same type of prayer. They use different words. If they say it in English, it's Almighty God, I thank you for the breath of life. And every Kenyan I hear pray, they start out that way. And then what do we do once we say this statement that we probably many times don't think about? We just start asking for things. God, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. And the problem is we're not in a position to start asking. At least that has been my testimony. And so these first forms of prayer have just opened up the reality of my personal relationship with God that gets me in the proper frame of mind, in a proper attitude. It brings me into a proper approach to God before I ask Him for all these things. So I want us to look at this this morning. Uh, these three forms of prayer, and we're going to begin by looking at worship and praise. Make sure I'm at the right one. Definition from Noah Webster's Dictionary, 1828 Praise is a commendation bestowed on a person for his personal virtues or worthy actions, on meritorious actions themselves, or on anything valuable, approbation expressed in words or song. We need to ask God to help us. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you meet with us? Would you help me to clearly and concisely share my testimony about how you're leading me in this matter of fellowship and prayer time? These forms of prayer. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of us would have an understanding of what prayer, uh, what praise is. One thing that, and I think I have it. Yes, I have it underlined up there expressed in words now i'm just going to tell you this but it's really important in kenya well i have to help people understand that praise is a verbal vocal expression so many kenyans believe that if i dance that's praise and that so many other things uh, physical activities by the way even music is not ne- is not specifically praise it's to accompany praise Praise needs to be an expression of God's value or God's worth. And so we begin our worship of God, our prayer time, by telling God, expressing to God His value to us. Well, we begin with praise because praise is where God dwells. Psalm 22, verse number 3. Thou, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of of Israel, and by the way, I'm just. Let me just tell you where I got my outline today. It's this outline came from my prayer journal. When I started to put this together, I just went through the pages of my prayer journal and lessons that God had taught me over the last several years, and I just started trying to recognize a pattern, an outline uh, based on the verses that God has led me to over the years. So that's what you're going to find here. We know that God inhabits the entire universe he's actually transcended over the entire universe but the bible tells us that God inhabits he dwells he finds comfort he is at home in praise that's why we begin with praise have you ever been around someone that all they do is complain you want to how soon can I get away from this person or maybe it's someone who is always asking. You know, I have one or two people. I know, whenever I see him come to uh-oh, they're going to ask me for something again. Okay? Do You ever think, maybe God feels that way? Now, He doesn't. He's perfect. He doesn't have those selfish motives that I have. But uh, the Bible tells us He inhabits. He's at home. He dwells in the praises. That's what He wants to hear first. So God inhabits the praises of Israel. But we also begin with praise because it is praise that brings us or allows us to enter into His presence. Psalm 100, verse number 4, the familiar verse, "...enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him, and bless His name." And let me just make this distinction between praise and thanksgiving. They are very similar, but I think if there is a distinction... The distinction would be that praise focuses on God's name and character, while thanksgiving focuses on God's works. And if we're familiar with the hour that changes the world, we know that there is, uh, we begin with praise, and later on there is another prayer form of thanksgiving. And that's the distinction that uh, Dick Eastman makes uh, in his prayer plan. So we want to begin by praising God by focusing our attention on His character on his name, focusing on God himself. Going back to the illustration of how we begin our prayer. When we say, thank you for this day, you know what the focus is on? It's on me and today. When the Kenyan says, you know, thank you for the breath of life, what do they focus on? On me and that I'm still alive. And why we praise is because we want to take the focus off of self and change our focus to God himself. And I just got ahead of myself. That's point number three. Psalm 115, verse number one. The Bible says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. That's our purpose in praise, to Just stop thinking about self and start focusing on God. Psalm 34, verse number 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, so often, if we are going to taste something, we are concerned about, what's it taste like? What kind of pleasure does it give my taste buds? And we will express it as saying, this food is good because it pleases us. That's not really the picture here. It's supposed to say, look at God himself. Come into some kind of experience that you know he is good. And it's not because of what it does for you, that the benefit that it would give you, though it probably will give you some. But it's simply to focus upon God. Number four, we need to praise God, and there are many subjects... In the scriptures of which to praise, and this is something that has been very helpful to me, and I try and do every day in my in my devotion time. And uh, again, one of the one of the great blessings in the hour that changes the world, our our prayer hour, is the combining uh, uh, the scripture with our prayer time. For so often I kept the two of them separate but they are so integrated that it's important. And I just put up on the screen behind me Psalm 111. I don't have the whole psalm there. Ten short verses. Verse number one simply declares, Praise ye the Lord. But in each verse, there is another characteristic of God for which to praise Him. Verse number 2 says the works of the Lord are great. Verse 3, honorable and glorious is his righteousness. Verse number 4, he hath made his wonderful works to be remembered, gracious and full of compassion. Verse 5, he will ever be mindful of his covenant, which is speaking of his faithfulness. Verse 6, talks of his power. Verse 7, verity and judgment. All of his commandments are sure. Verse number 8, they stand fast forever and ever. Truth and uprightness. Verse number 9, Holy and reverend is His name. Verse number 10, His praise endureth forever. Just one psalm, but all of the psalms are rich in giving us characteristics and names of God that take the focus off of us and put it on Him as we begin our meeting with God in prayer. Well, the next form of prayer that we have is Waiting on God. We had a mentoring meeting where I was talking with those that were with me in my mentoring group and asking them, you know, how are you applying these different forms of prayer? What are you learning from? This was over a year ago. And uh, one of the students said, I just don't understand what waiting on God is. So I just ignore it. I just skip over it. I think, oh, you're missing out on such a blessing. So that's what led to this. Waiting on God. What do I have here? Okay. Waiting on God is the practice of stillness and quietness in the presence of God. There are three aspects to waiting on God. Number one, to wait for an answer to prayer, expecting God to act or intervene. And uh, we understand that definition of prayer. Sometimes... That waiting, by that definition, could I put it another way? It refers to importunity or persistence in prayer. Don't give up. Keep on praying. But it could also mean that I have received the assurance that God is going to answer the prayer. I'm just waiting for him to give the answer or to fulfill what he's already answered. A second Definition of waiting on God is to listen to God, understanding His will and guidance for one's life. And uh, I would put this definition under the category in the forms of prayer of the listening yielding, where I'm I'm waiting on God to lead me in my daily activities. But I think at the beginning of our prayer, we want to concentrate on the third definition, which is to silently seek communion and intimacy with God or to know God, to come into His presence, into fellowship with Him. And it is this last aspect that we want to consider. So how do we wait upon God? These are some lessons that I have learned, some things I've been practicing. Number one, choose an attribute, act, or name of God to think about in its most exalted and majestic form. We want to think about what is, what is God like what does he look like from the words of scripture and we have uh, psalms 46 verse number 10 be still and know that i am god i will be exalted among the heathen i will be exalted in the earth we will not see god in his exalted character until we are still and take time to focus on that psalm 97 it's a psalm i read in my devotions yesterday If I can just interject this, the psalm begins verses 1 uh, 1 through 3. The Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. And as I read that in my devotions, that was what I was going to meditate on. What is the Lord reigneth? What does it look like? Now forgive me. Okay? I'm a product of my generation. Okay? My generation has, called, has been called the TV generation. Okay? And when I read that the Lord reigneth, clouds and darkness are round about him, and fire goeth before him, an image came to my mind. It was the image from the Wizard of Oz. And the great Oz, you know, and the smoke shooting up and the flames. and Now, that's not God. But I'll tell you, that's my starting point, <laughs> okay? And I want to I go beyond that, okay? I want to exalt the character of God. I don't want to Hollywoodize it, okay? But I, I share that because in our time of waiting, on, we want to know him. What is he like? What does it look like? What would it feel like to be in the very throne room of God? And we need to use a, if I can use this term, and I, I will clarify this later. I'll, I will, there's a danger, let me put it this way, and I'll clarify the danger a little bit later. Sometimes we need to use a little sanctified imagination to, un- to get a better understanding of what God is as we read the scriptures. uh, Philippians 3, verse number 10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That's our goal, to know God in those situations. To know God in his power, to know God or to fellowship with God even in his sufferings and to be made conformable to him, which is his death. Joe Church, writing as a group of missionaries and nationals, were trying to understand the revival that was happening around them. Define the revival this way. It is a daily coming back to the cross in humility and confession, being made conformable unto his death. Well, as we choose an attribute or a name of God to think about in his exalted form, we want to reflect on God's character with both mind and emotions. And Dick Eastman says that when it comes to waiting on God, don't rush through this form of prayer. Because so often in our minds, okay, I got that one, moving on. When really the purpose is to I think to have an emotional experience, an emotional experience of awe that we can come as sinful, finite pieces of dust, that we can come into the presence of the Almighty God and have fellowship with Him. Waiting on God is similar to meditation as each begins with silent thought. But waiting on God continues to reflect on God's perfection until one comes to experience awe and wonder for that attribute. At this point, one's intellect connects with one's emotions to feel the grandeur of God's perfection, entering into intimate communion with God and reveling in His character. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 13. The Bible says, Who hath, declared, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us, into the kingdom of his dear son. One commentator writing about, describing what that kingdom of his dear son means, it is that place of loving intimacy between the father and the son. And we, as his saved creatures, are invited into that fellowship. And I believe we experience that when we wait on God. Some other verses... Psalm 4, verse 4 says, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Psalm 94, verse number 19, In the multitude of my thoughts within me, my com- thy comforts delight my soul. Psalm 16, verse number 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And I'll be honest with you. When I was your age, I was told, read your Bible, have your devotions. And I would would remember hearing preachers saying, you know, the Psalms are so rich. They're so full. And I thought, I don't get it. Because I was just reading with my mind. But the psalmists are telling us there is an experience a fellowship that we can come into where we delight our soul, where we find fullness of joy, and where we stand in awe. It will change your perspective on your day when you spend those few minutes waiting on God. Well, waiting on God, not only does it affect our emotions, but it it increases our faith. The significance of waiting on God goes beyond the intimate communion with Him. Our intimate communion with God, which is our love relationship with Him, is the basis for growing faith, confidence, trust, and dependence upon God. Knowing and loving God is the basis of faith. Okay, we do have some verses here. Coloss- or, excuse me, Psalm 143, verse number 8 says, cause me, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust? Psalm 20, verse number 6. Now know I that the Lord saveth His anointed. He will hear from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Other verses. Isaiah 30, verse number 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall ye be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength and ye would not. And I have to stop there. How often am I so busy serving God that I don't take time to just wait upon Him because it is in that quietness with God that I receive strength, that my faith is increased. Psalm 33, verse number 20. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And we have a couple of quotes here. Uh, The British uh, old British preacher John Gill says, this, uh, this being soul waiting, it denotes the heartiness, sincerity, and earnestness of waiting on God. It is that earnestness to just get to know God, to experience that awe, that grandeur of who He is. Charles Spurgeon says, To wait is a great lesson, to be quiet in expectation, patient in hope, single in confidence, is one of the great attainments of a Christian. But not only does waiting on God increase our faith, but waiting on God leads us to fear the Lord. Psalm 25, verse number 12 says, What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he should choose. Now, this verse is a verse I have both in this section of my prayer journal. I also have it in the section on my listening and yielding. As I'm seeking, Lord direct my steps today what do you want me to do today what is the project among the many that i need to work on now the lord will direct us to what we need to do and again john gill says of this he who fears the lord not on account of the punishment of sin but under the influence of the pardon of it and for his goodness sake who loves the lord trusts in him is is careful not to offend him Hates sin and avoids it. Again, be, but it's because we have been pardoned from sin. Romans eleven twenty two. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee, goodness. And number five, the foundation for waiting on God is the word of God. I mentioned earlier this having... Uh, using your sanctified imagination. There are many books and there are many religion religious groups that are promoting false types of waiting on God, false practices of coming into communion, false practices of prayer, okay? Many of them, and what makes them false is that they are isocentric, they're focused on self. How do you feel about God? Now, we want to feel something about God, but it's not our feelings that are important. It's God who's important. And it's God who will give us the feelings. So it's important for us to understand as we wait upon God that the foundation for waiting upon God is the Word of God itself. That's what we must keep going back to. Psalm 1, verse number 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 119. Verses 161 through 163. Princes have persecuted me without cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Waiting on God is our quiet worship as we think about his perfection, wonder at his majesty, revel in his fellowship, and trust in His character. Well, from the form of waiting on God, we go to the form of confession of sin. Confession of sin, begin, uh, we must understand that waiting on God naturally leads to confession. Isaiah 6, verses 1 and 5, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And in verse number 5, Isaiah responded to that vision, Then said I, woe is me it led him to realize his condition you see when we see God in his perfection our imperfection becomes so much more glaring and that's where we begin with our confession okay everybody says well I don't have anything to confess well you haven't been looking at God you haven't been waiting on him if you look at God if you're waiting on him It's going to be really clear what you need to confess, okay? Forgive me, I'm not going to show you my prayer journal, okay? Too many to confess, okay? They're for me. (laughs) You have your own. But we want to confess known sin, and God will reveal that sin as we wait upon Him. But Psalm 38, verse number 18, For I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. Are we really sorry for it? Kenyans, and I think people around the world, in our society, it's, well, if I say I'm sorry, just take me, you know, I, I, now we remove the consequences, we can go on. We don't even have to mean it. As long as I say the words. No, we must be sorry. Express sorrow for our sin is what that means. Well, as we confess sin, there are, The Bible gives us several definitions. gives us many sins that are listed by name. But I have chosen, as I go through my devotion time, just uh, five definitions taken from Scripture that help me to realize, am I in sin? Isaiah 53, verse number 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we read that verse so often we think that iniquity is god going this way and me going this way but so often it's god going this way and me just just off a little bit i'm walking near him but i'm not walking in his footsteps and here's the question i have in my journal that i ask every morning am i looking at my life my walk with god and am i saying i'm close enough or should i be closer the second verse, uh, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And sin is to miss the mark or to miss the standard of God's perfection. And I have a question I ask, have I done good enough? Or is what I think acceptable? Instead of looking at what God thinks is acceptable. 1 John 3.4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. I'll tell you, this is a big one in Kenya, probably a big one in America. But we live with this attitude. Well, I can get away with it. It doesn't matter. As long as I don't get caught. Well, if we have that attitude, we are sinning. James 4, verse number 7, excuse me, Romans 14, 23. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You know, we express it this way. I got this. I'm good. I can do it myself. And that attitude is sin. James 4, verse 17, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And when we go by and we see something that we could do, and we simply say, I don't need to. I can go by. We have sinned. We need to confess all of those known sins. Number three, we need to ask God to reveal secret sin that we may confess. It Psalm 90, verse number eight. Thou hast set my my iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Then Psalm 26, verse number 2. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. And we need to ask God to reveal to us what sins we are blind to, what sins uh, we are not aware of, that we can confess them and be right with Him. Number 4. We need to confess weakness of character. Psalm 6, verse number 2, the psalmist said, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. Now, God did give us our character, our personality. He created us as we are. But, He expects us to grow. He wants us to change, to be conformed to His image. Now, it is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there's also an aspect of, our, of learning our own self-discipline. So we must also confess weakness of character. And last, confession of sin draws us ever closer to God. Psalm 51, verse number 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. But notice Psalm 34, verse number 18: the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. You see, we the purpose of these first three forms: praise, waiting on God, and confession, it's to bring us into the proper, a proper approach. To God. Now, that praise and worship, that is a very common picture of people who praise. Raising their hands, I've come to worship God, I've come to praise God. But is that the proper picture we ought to have? It really isn't. By the way, Jesus condemned that in Luke chapter 18. Verse 1, he says, He spake this parable to those who trusted in their own righteousness. And he describes a man who has his hands up, saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. It's the wrong picture. So we go from praise to waiting on God. It's yielding to God, but it's humbling or beginning to humble us, bringing us down to a seated position. But when we confess sin... It brings us into that proper position as we approach God, that humility of kneeling before our Maker, our Savior, our King. And that's the lessons I've been learning in my approach to God as I begin my prayer time each day. I don't dwell, I don't remain in that defeated position. Oh, Lord, I have confessed, I have all these sins that I've been living with all day. No, we confess them and we leave them. I'm going to finish with this, and I'm out of time. Forgive me for those who have class, but uh, I want to share this. This is what God gave me this morning, just this morning. I was reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse number 11 says, And such were some of you. In the preceding verses, the Apostle Paul has listed a whole list of awful sins. But then he says, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And when we confess, then we are ready to walk with God throughout our day. Let's pray together. Our Father, I do thank you for the...